This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about Machine Gun Kelly. Now, I wanted to do this series, or I guess this episode, as a launch to a potential long-running series where we talk about men and mental health. I've done this briefly with the Bo Burnham episode, the very first one I did, which I think is episode four, where I talked about how Bo Burnham is presenting this presentation, he's presenting a presentation of depression and how we can look at that and understand how depression presents in men. And I provided like some information about particularly depression in male presenting people. A lot of presentation. Uh, And it got to thinking of, I think there are a lot of public figures that we can do similar things with that are in line with the, you know, kind of core of the show and that there are some male celebrities that engage in particularly problematic behavior. And rather than just talking about them in a like kind of shock and awe way where we criticize and move on, we can then use that behavior in this show to talk about maybe red flags in your personal life or solutions or possible recommendations if you find yourself around or participating in that problematic behavior. So as always, you know, ending with a a recommendation or or a more positive note. I also feel that I am kind of uniquely positioned to talk about this because I have spent most of my clinical career working with predominantly men. And as a a woman and a feminist psychologist who works with men, I think I bring a different perspective to things. Um, I talk about this a little bit in my introduction episode, if you want to kind of get more about my ethos or my kind of core values that contributes to my clinical work. Um, But all of that taken together, I think kind of puts me in a a unique position to talk about problematic celebrity men (laughs) and what we as regular people can learn about mental health and mental well-being from these figures. So without further ado, I'm going to talk about Machine Gun Kelly and what we can learn from some of the stories that have been circulating about him. So if you don't know who Machine Gun Kelly is, it's understandable because he's, I think, a little more popular with younger people, particularly with like preteen or an adolescent uh, listeners. He is not the old-timey gangster Machine Gun Kelly for my older listeners (laughs) he is named after like his name is in reference to the the old-timey gangster um, but his real name is colson baker he's a musician and an actor and he's been in the news recently for some odd behavior particularly in the context of romantic relationships to prepare for this episode i read quite a few uh i guess pop culture articles um about machine gun kelly and kind of covering some of this stuff and then i did watch his documentary which is called Machine Gun Kelly's Life in Pink, uh, came out this year and it's on Hulu. Skip it. It's not good. Um, (laughs) I'm just gonna be very honest. It's not good. It was not worth my time. But I wanted to watch it to get his perspective because obviously it's a documentary that he helped produce and is the the subject of. So it's going to be more on his side. And I wanted to get that aside from just reading articles written about him by other people. I'm just going to up top say the Machine Gun Kelly documentary is very difficult to follow. The timeline is very confusing. It's 
a lot of weird effects, like fast forwarding and uh, strobing effect. It's hard to watch, like just not the content, but like the visually, it's very difficult to watch. And like most documentaries about musicians, it's really kind of like watching bits and pieces of a live concert. And I think in most cases, I'd rather just watch a live concert rather than watching these like mashed together clips of things with in-between footage of young men smoking a lot of weed and getting really drunk. Like that that really is the, the crux of the documentary. But I wanted to be fair and consume content that came from him. I have listened to a few of his songs. I'm not a big fan of his music. It's just not for me. I do like some of the collabs he's done. He collabs with um, Halsey and Willow. I really and have enjoyed some of those songs. But in general, his music is not for me. <laughs> uh, and I, I just don't like it that much. I think he's like pretty talented musician. People, He has a pretty big fan base. People seem to really like his music who do like his music. And he has won awards. So I just want to preface all of this episode by saying I did watch the documentary I have read quite a few articles about him and I think it balances out kind of the perspective that uh, I'm getting and as always I'm not here to diagnose him because I don't work with him so there will be no discussion of what diagnosis I think that he has or if he has any Uh, we're just talking about behavior that he has engaged in how that can be discussed in general in a mental health context Going back to the beginning, he was born in 1990. First few years of his life, he moved around a lot. He even lived overseas, I think in like Egypt and stuff for a while. Eventually was settled back in the U.S. as a child in Colorado and was largely raised by his aunt. The reason for that is that his mother left when he was nine years old and his father struggled a lot with depression and had a lot of um, difficulties being present as a parent and was unable to take care of Colson or Machine Gun Kelly. In the documentary... Machine Gun Kelly shares a story about his father that when his father was like nine or ten years old, he witnessed his father's death by suicide by shooting himself with a shotgun and the ensuing like traumatic fallout of that death. So I think this is a very, very clear example of intergenerational trauma and how what happened to his father and his grandfather as passing down through the generations to still impact him. And I don't think it's a coincidence that his mother left when he was nine and that his father went through this thing at nine years old, too. I would imagine that his father became very activated by his nine-year-old son and the memories of that trauma became activated. This is really common with parents who went through abuse at a certain age or went through a trauma at a certain age. When their own child reaches that similar age, they may become activated or triggered by seeing a child who probably looks very much like themselves when they were that age. This is brought up in the Leaving Neverland documentary as well, if you've ever seen that, about the boys who were abused by Michael Jackson. They talk about when their children were born and were the same age as they were when they first encountered Michael Jackson. They began to have a lot more like symptoms, trauma reactions than they had previously when interacting with their children. This is my like speculation, and I, I bring this up to say that this is super common for parents who have gone through a trauma. If you had parents who had a traumatizing childhood and you may have noticed that at a certain age your relationship with them changed it may be because you hit that age where uh, they went through their trauma and so they have difficulty 
dealing with you at that age because it's reminding them of uh, the age that they were at. When you're an adult looking at a child that is the age you were in, you really see how vulnerable a child is, right? Like when Machine Gun Kelly's dad is looking at him as a nine-year-old, he's really getting the picture of what it's like, how small and vulnerable a nine-year-old child is and remembering the things he went through at that age. So, and I don't, the documentary doesn't cover this. None of the articles I, I read covered why his mother left. And I don't think that's as, as important to this episode, but I do think it is an interesting point to illustrate that sometimes these like life trajectories mirror each other from generation to generation. And there may have been something going on with his father as Machine Gun Kelly approaches age nine that led to the dissolution of their relationship because his father couldn't handle the like the trauma responses that he was going through. They apparently later reconciled in Light Machine Gun Kelly and his father, but like this time growing up was very difficult. They had a pretty rocky relationship. And I believe at 18, his dad kicked him out of the house like for good. Uh, he has shared that he has a history of being bullied and he dealt with a lot of poverty as a child uh, and a teenager. His dad had trouble holding down jobs because of depression and other mental health issues. This is another thing that I think is really important to kind of pause and highlight is the impact that mental health can have on someone's ability to get a job and that sometimes we have to consider the fact that like a traditional workplace is not a good place for people with mental health difficulties. It's not a good place for all of us, if we're being honest, but particularly for people who have an untreated mental health issue or are working on um, getting their mental health together. A, a traditional like nine to five, 40 hour work week can be really difficult. It can be hard to like pull yourself together enough to be in an office, to be around other people, to like stick to a schedule. Uh, there can be a lot going on in the background of your life that makes it just like really difficult to participate in traditional work. Oftentimes, people who have a de like a debilitating mental illness need to seek an alternative form of like work or income so that they can support themselves in the way that works for them and works for their well-being. And I don't recommend anyone forcing themselves to get a like quote unquote traditional type of job. Just because our culture says that that's what you have to do, I think that there are a lot of options for how you can support yourself. And if you are working with like a mental health professional, I hope that they support you in that as well. And sometimes we have to, you know, manage our expectations about what a job is uh, in order to make sure that we are not making our like health issues worse, right? Physical or mental health. So uh, just another point there to <laughs> to pin down about uh his his upbringing also according to machine gun kelly he began using drugs in high school and then his dad moved to kuwait and left him in colorado however he eventually moved to kuwait with his father and then they had to move back to the u.s and settled in cleveland which is where he spent most of his like high school adolescence cleveland is also where his music career began which at first i forgot that cleveland had <laughs> the <laughs> rock and roll hall of fame <laughs> which is why a lot of people get into music who are from Cleveland, but I just, it's Cleveland. I, that's, there's my West Coast bias. It's Cleveland. Uh, he began rapping. That was kind of his like entrance into the music scene. And then at 18, he gets kicked out of his house and he fathers his first child. Uh, he's no longer with the mother, but he is uh, present in his child's life and she's featured quite heavily in the documentary as well. In 2010, his music career really starts to take off. He releases a mixtape. He was still doing rap at this time. And then in 2014, he starts acting. 
over this course of his adult life as well. He's had several rocky relationships, allegations of cheating, ending in his final relationship or his most current relationship, which is with the actress Megan Fox, who he met in 2020 and proposed to in 2022. And his most recent album, which was his last two albums are like pop punk uh, rock albums. So he moved away from the rap and then made a documentary about himself. (laughs) So that's kind of the background of Machine Gun Kelly, where he's kind of coming from. So like I said, his his history, especially in childhood, is a very clear example of intergenerational trauma. So this is where a trauma that happens in a generation before gets passed down onto the children of that generation. It can get passed down in multiple ways. It can be things like the way that the child is raised is directly influenced by the trauma that the parent went through. Uh, or it could be an actual like reenactment of the trauma the parent suffered on the child. This happens a lot in cycles of abuse. We see that the parent who's abusing a child was abused when they were a child, and most likely their parent was abused as well. Now, in some like marriage and family therapy modalities, uh, your provider may have you complete something called a genogram. And a genogram is a way that we map some of these intergenerational traumas or patterns through families um, across the generations. And usually what it looks like is you pick the last three generations. So you'd pick yourself, your parents, and your grandparents. If you know farther back, you would go farther back. And if you have children, you might put your children on this as well. Essentially, it's like a family tree. But instead of just tracking like who married who and who had how many kids, you're also tracking kind of what was the quality of the relationships or what was the like flavor of the relationships in the family. So you might look for... Was there emotional cutoff? Like maybe in some generations, the children cut off the parents. And so when they had children, those children never got to know their grandparents because there was cutoff. Maybe there were really, really intense enmeshed relationships in one generation. And so then when the, that generation had children, they became very enmeshed with their children as well. You'll typically see patterns like this or patterns of like very similar addictions, very similar substance abuse things moving through the different generations. So that's one way to kind of visualize what intergenerational trauma is and how it would impact yourself, right? Because you would be at the bottom or almost the bottom of this genogram or this family tree. So if we were to make a genogram for somebody like Machine Gun Kelly, whose father experienced trauma from his father and then inflicted trauma or maybe neglect some sort of difficulty onto his child, Uh, we would be able to kind of track that through the generations and kind of see uh, maybe if there were any similarities there. Now, I haven't talked about this yet, but I will in a later section in this episode. But Machine Gun Kelly talks a lot about his suicidal ideation, his his like suicidal behavior, I guess, his suicidal or suicidal adjacent behavior. He's talked about it. Some of his music is also talking about it. And I would imagine that that would be also part of these trends of that his grandfather died by suicide and that is kind of dwelling heavy on his mind is getting passed down. And perhaps due to his father being unable to process it, it it may have become more of a taboo that he couldn't talk to his father about. And that's another thing that can happen in families where trauma has occurred is instead of talking about it, the family kind of shuts it down, planks it out. We never talk about it. Like, A lot of people have 
that one cousin you never talk about because something really bad happened to them or that maybe they did something really heinous, like they committed a crime, right? They traumatized someone else. And when we do that, when we shut it down, when we don't talk about it, that makes it a lot easier for the cycle to continue unbidden because the new generations don't know what's wrong, right? They, and they don't know why it's bad or why it's wrong. They just know that there's something in the family that we can't talk about, and so they can never ask their questions about it. This is a recipe for then repeating a pattern because you don't know what's wrong or why it's wrong or, or why it's even happening to you. So now that you have a little bit of an idea about who Machine Gun Kelly is, some of his background, let's talk about some of his problematic controversies and what we can learn from it. So I've got four topics or categories of behavior that I want to talk about, and I've structured them from kind of like least problematic to most problematic. I guess that's one way to look at it, Uh, but I've kind of structured them to build on each other. And I'm going to break down each category. So the first category is his lack of inclusive language, let's just say, or his poor language choices when on social media or in media interviews. Now, some of these things uh, happened quite a few years ago, like in 2011, 2012. Some of them have happened a little more recently. And I think that It's not always useful to like pull up tweets from 2012 and say like this means that this person is, you know, doing something wrong. But I think in the context of Machine Gun Kelly's career, these things are, there's a pattern to them. Um, They don't just come out of nowhere and it kind of leads to this like pattern of behavior that suggests some maybe impulsivity, maybe some difficulty regulating emotions. So that's why I'm including the poor language. He has a history of using slurs against certain communities, specifically against trans people and people of color. He has tweeted quite a few slurs. It's not pleasant to read. And as a a white man who was participating in the hip hop scene, it would behoove him to be like careful about how he uses his language. And I think that this speaks to some white privilege that us white people can learn from in this moment is that when we use language that is demeaning or oppressive to other groups, we get away with it a lot because it can be really difficult for a marginalized group to call out an oppressor. That is dangerous. It can be, it can backfire onto the marginalized people more so than the oppressing people. It can, you know, cause emotional discomfort, physical discomfort, physical like danger. So it, it's it's hard to to call white people out when we use language against racial groups. Same for like cis people using language against trans people or men using language against women, right? The marginalized group is not always in a position to be able to call that out in a way that ensures all members of the group are safe. All that to say, like, it, and this is not a machine gun Kelly problem. This is a problem for people in oppressor groups, which, you know, as a white person, I am in an oppressor group. And so this lesson applies to me as well of weaponizing language against marginalized people is not good. And it's something that we have to be on top of ourselves about because it can be difficult for the marginalized people to call that out. A perfect example of this in Machine Gun Kelly's history is a comment he made in an inter- he made this this in an interview. He made inappropriate sexual comments about black women. I'm not going to repeat it. It's really 
it's gross. Um, you can look up the articles in the sources page if you want to read about it. Um, but he made very inappropriate comments about and, and like black women as a whole. So like the whole community it, to an interviewer. And then while this was happening, there was a black woman who was like on the set where this interview was happening. And she she walked away quite like offended and disgusted by the comments that he was making. And he lost it. He started to scream at her. He called her all the names in the dictionary and has since doubled down. When he got called out about the statement, he's doubled down on it. Again, this was something that happened a few years ago, so I don't know if his stance on it has changed since then. I don't know if anyone even still asks him about it. But at the time, he was pretty hell-bent on not going back on it. And his reaction when not even called out, just the woman walked away. She, she didn't even like say anything to him. She just walked off the set because she didn't want to be around someone who was talking about a group she belongs to like that. His reaction is why marginalized people are not safe to call out like language like this. Like the fact that he's screaming at her, he's verbally assaulting her. That's that's horrifying. And you never know what that could escalate to, not just for Machine Gun Kelly, but for anyone who starts to verbally assault you. There's always a fear that it could escalate and turn into like a physical assault. So she's now in danger because she wanted to remove herself from a situation that was uncomfortable. And does she need to sit there and be happy about these comments that he's making? Like, does she owe him that? No, obviously not. And this goes for anyone, regardless of if they're like a millionaire rock star or not. Other people don't owe you a comfortable experience if you're saying, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic things. People are allowed to have reactions to that, especially if you're talking about groups that they belong to. And so I hope that if anyone is listening to this that still uses language like that or says inappropriate things about entire groups of people, uh, that you can understand that, that that's not, that's not something that you're owed, right? And that's not freedom of speech isn't about everyone being happy about what you have to say. The First Amendment doesn't mean that we get to just say whatever we want and people can't have an opinion about it. It just means the government can't put you in jail. Like, Machine Gun Kelly can't go to jail for <laughs> this horrible comment that he made. But people can walk away and be upset and ask him to apologize. And I will say that's something that came off in the documentary in his, like, one-on-one interviews is that he puts up this like front of everyone is always coming after him you know nobody likes him everybody has a problem with what he does but again nobody is owed a comfortable reception if their behavior is destructive or inappropriate i have worked with clients i have worked with professionals um like with colleagues who struggle with this who struggle with the understanding that other people don't owe them a comfortable experience. And what you got to be able to do is understand that if the people reacting around you are reacting poorly in a way that you don't like, maybe sitting down and looking at the common denominator here is my actions. And if this is just the tip of the iceberg for Machine Gun Kelly's actions, then I hope he or other people who act like him are able to understand that it's this cumulative effect, right? If you keep offending people and keep acting in inappropriate ways, it adds up and people are not going to be happy with you and are not going to be comfortable around you. Okay, category number two is substance use. (laughs) The substance use is tricky because it kind of weaves through all of this. I think that it's been pretty clear through media coverage and even through his own interviews and the documentary that Machine Gun Kelly's substance use has been quite problematic for him and has played a role in a lot of these problematic events that we're, we're talking about in this episode. In the documentary, 
he mentions that he decided to stop using quote-unquote drugs after a phone call he had with Megan Fox that got a little out of hand. And he says that he hasn't used drugs since then. Again, because the documentary was so bad, I don't know where in the timeline that happened, but it was sometime between 2020 and 2022, as that is within the timeline of him being in this relationship with Megan Fox. So he's since that amorphous time period, he has allegedly been sober. However, he still appears to be drinking quite heavily and using marijuana. So I don't know what the drugs were that he stopped using. He's never very explicit about that in the documentary and in other interviews I read. It's not very explicit. I saw some hints that maybe he was using uh, like stimulants, possibly like cocaine, but I'm I'm not sure. And he hasn't been forthright with that. And that's okay. Like that's, I'm, uh, I'm not here to be the drug police <laughs> or to say that like people can't use certain drugs. That's not my role. That's not what I'm interested in. However, as a mental health professional, one of the things that I often work with people on is substance use that has maybe gotten out of control or gotten to a point where they're not happy with it. I've never been an abstinence only person and I've worked with, I've worked with people who've done all kinds of drugs from PCP to, you know, methamphetamine, heroin, all the opioid, like I've worked with people who have used everything. One of the things that I I always want to start off with is like the substance use itself is not what I'm here to judge and, and my role here is not to judge it. My role here is to help you figure out what is the most like healthy and safe way for you to either use substances or manage substances or cut them out of your life if that's what you want. What is the patient's goal? It does not work well if you sit down with a patient or a client and say, you got to be sober. Unless it's like some sort of court mandated program and then we're talking about other stuff and (laughs) that's a whole nother issue. But if like someone voluntarily comes in for treatment and is like, I want to cut down on the amount of cocaine that I use. All right, let's talk about how we can get you to be safe. I also always, always, always do encourage harm reduction stuff. So if you're using drugs that you're getting from sources that you don't know maybe where they're coming from, please, please, please use fentanyl testing strips. Please use fentanyl testing strips. You can pick them up at like clinics in most cities. You put them, it's usually for like cocaine or other like powdered substances that you might be using, but you put the strips in there to see if there's any fentanyl that's been cut into. The reason that this is important because if you do a drug that is not fentanyl but has fentanyl in it, your system is not ready for that high level of opioids and it could cause like an overdose or an unfortunate death. So please test. If you use needles, I always encourage people to like use needle exchanges, find out where they are. If there is a safe injection site near you, those are great resources as well. They often have things like a nurse on site to help you inject correctly um, so that you're not risking infection help you exchange those needles so that you're always getting clean needles, and then may also have other resources there if that's what you need. I'm all about harm reduction. So if Machine Gun Kelly is going to rep harm reduction, I support that as well. If he's saying, hey, this substance use was getting out of control and I decided to cut down on it so that I didn't hurt myself or someone else. I'm a big fan of that. What I'm not a big fan of is in the documentary and other interviews with him, he's visibly intoxicated or under the influence of usually marijuana, and then engaging in risky behavior like driving 150 miles down the highway um, or kicking out the front windshield of a car while it's moving. A lot of car-based stuff. Punching out a hole in the ceiling, climbing on top of roofs. These are very dangerous activities when you're sober 
and engaging in them when you're not sober is incredibly dangerous. And I think one of the biggest issues is that because his audience is so young, tends to be pre-adolescent children or adolescents, that this is not necessarily a good role model to set for those people. And not that he has to be a saint to be a good role model, but I think that there are important conversations that he can model for the kids that are into his music about safe substance use, because these kids are going to want to try the stuff that he does. They want to be like him. They showed a lot of clips in the documentary of kids who were like at his concerts or or like at meetups, and they want to be like him. They love him. They relate to him because he talks about the feelings that they have. And I think that's fantastic that they have somebody who articulates what it's like to be a teenager in a rough home, what it's like to be a kid growing up maybe being bullied or having really intense relationship issues. Having somebody speak to that can be super cathartic and a great coping skill. And so I'm glad that there's music out there for those kids. I don't think it's good (laughs) to model for those vulnerable kids this kind of lifestyle. And just because you stop using heavy drugs doesn't mean that you still don't have an issue with substances. The marijuana and alcohol use can be just as problematic, especially if it's getting out of control. So again, I'm not diagnosing. I'm not going to say that anyone in that documentary has an alcohol or marijuana use disorder. I'm not interested in that, but I do want to illustrate that these substances, wherever they fall on the spectrum of intensity, can be problematic if the the use of the substance starts to feel out of control or it starts to feel like you need more of the substance to get the same effect. That's when we're hitting what we would call like biological tolerance and your body has built up a tolerance to this stuff. You may start experiencing cravings. You may start experiencing withdrawal symptoms if you don't have the substance. That's when there there could be a, a pretty big issue and I would really encourage you to seek support and seek help, especially medical attention because there are excellent medication-assisted therapies that can really help you get the physical symptoms under control so that you have time to work on the underlying stuff that may contribute to your substance use. I think it's no secret that Machine Gun Kelly is a troubled young man. He's made that very clear, although he is 32 now, so a proper adult. But I think his presentation of himself as having quite a few struggles and having a lot of like suffering and internal internal turmoil, oftentimes that can lead people to use substances. And there is a very high correlation between experiencing trauma and engaging in substance use. Sometimes it's a coping skill that we turn to. And although it may give relief in the moment when it becomes maladaptive or becomes out of control, then it's no longer a coping skill that's helping you. It's a coping skill that's hurting you. And it might be time to change your approach to the substance use. But again, something to do with a professional, with medical care, or or a mental health professional, or both. Um, and the, I think this is just kind of like a, a PSA. <laughs> this is my PSA, the more you know about substance use. Now, another reason why I think discussing substance use and Machine Gun Kelly is important is because the behavior that he engages in when he's performing is quite dangerous. And even though Somewhere in this magical timeline, he stopped using drugs. He's still engaging in quite impulsive behavior. And in fact, in his most recent tour, which I think was still going through August, he has smashed a champagne glass on his face twice at two separate concerts, which has resulted in him bleeding on the stage. So he's taken 
a champagne gla- like a champagne flute and just smash it on his face and starts bleeding. I don't know if he's intoxicated during these events or these decisions to do this, um, but it being a champagne glass, I think, ties it into alcohol use, right? I'm concerned about why that happens. I'm concerned that, again, children are seeing that happen. Yeah, I mean, I can't really, I can't really quite make sense of it. The article that I was reading about it didn't really have an explanation for it. He, he hasn't provided an explanation for it. He just kind of says, like, he's in the zone and he's partying. And so he smashes this glass on his face. The puzzling thing is that he then did it twice. Um, so I would say maybe there's something that there's a pattern there that, that someone might want to look into. Um, that he, he himself might want to look into. But this idea of like, if you're going so strong, you're going so hard, you've used so much substances that you don't feel pain in the moment. Uh, that also, I think, is something that might be a red flag for a, a changing something in your lifestyle because uh, pain is there for a reason, right? To to send us a message. So if you're finding yourself engaging in that type of extreme behavior, it's another red flag to, to reach out for help. All right. So the first two categories were, you know, a little light, not great, but a little light, but we're going to move into the heavier ones. So category number three is Machine Gun Kelly's relationship to underage girls. Yeah, this is complicated again because his audience or his like main fan base is underage girls or girls and boys and theys of all genders. Uh, but his track record with girls who are under the age of 18 is not, it's not good. So in 2012, he tweeted about Eminem's daughter, who was 16 at the time, while he was 22, so it's a six-year age difference. The tweet read, okay, so I just saw a picture of Eminem's daughter, and I have to say she is hot as fuck in the most res- most respectful way possible because M is king. So not great. Um, This has also instigated a years-long feud between MGK, that's the abbreviation for Machine Gun Kelly, between MGK and Eminem, which has resulted in several diss tracks and Eminem does not like this man. There's interviews through like to the end of 2021 where they're still talking about this. The aftermath of this tweet was that then Machine Gun Kelly also went on all these interviews. He got asked about it a lot and was talking about this tweet and talking about Eminem's daughter in various interviews. I believe she's not in the public eye so I'm not gonna bring up her name or anything and one of the articles I was reading mentioned that she doesn't want to be talked about uh, so I'm not gonna talk about her. Uh, but I, I think that there are two <laughs> two big things here that are an issue. So one is obviously saying that you're attracted to someone under the age of 18 is a problem. I wanted to highlight from a mental health perspective what our role is as professionals when discussing these kinds of issues of like uh, sexual intercourse or sexual activity between someone who is under the age of 18. So as a mental health professional, I'm a mandated reporter and I have to... Legally, I have to report child sexual abuse, and that includes sexual behavior between uh, a a person under the age of 18 and, in certain cases, people over the age of 18. Now, if regardless of the age difference, the kids could both be 14. If there is any coercion, potential exploitation, or anything that hints that it's involuntary, I have to report it. Even if the kids are the same age, I have to report it. Because the second there's like an element of non-consensual sexual contact, it's no longer like a, an issue of like a relationship stuff. It's, a, it's abuse. So as a mandated reporter, I have to report that. There are cer- certain combinations that I wouldn't have to report if it was consensual sex or sexual contact between 
children of certain ages. So let's say I had a patient who was 16 and their boyfriend or or their partner was 18. I don't have to report that. And if they're having sexual uh, consensual sexual contact, I can use my clinical judgment. And maybe if I suspect that there is an element of like sex trafficking or sexual exploitation, I can report that. But I do, I'm not mandated to report just the fact that a sexual relationship exists between a 16 year old and an 18 year old. Now, let's see. This girl was 16 at the time. Machine Gun Kelly was 22 at the time. It's not a mandated reporting issue with either if this was the situation. It's up to my clinical judgment. If the person was 15 and they were having sex with someone 21 or older, I have to report that. Report, report, report. And this, this is in the state of California. This is based on our legal code in California and the Child Abuse and Neglect Reporting Act, which mandates who has to report this. This is also true for teachers, law enforcement, doctors, nurses, like medical professionals, anyone who's a mandated reporter, these rules apply. There's this handy dandy chart, which is what I'm reading off of, that I'll link in the sources page as well if you want to look at it. And it outlines like where are the absolute reportable areas that makes this child abuse because the age difference is is not great. And where are the gray areas where we would be on the lookout for exploitation or if the child is saying there's any um, like non-consensual issues here. Now, I, I want to say this because one, I do have listeners who are between or who are under 18. And so you may want to know this for when you're talking to your therapist about what they have to report and how they can help you if you find yourself in a coercive sexual relationship, even, even with someone who's the same age as you. Um, but also because I think it's important for people to know how mandated reporting works. No one is reporting Machine Gun Kelly. I'm not saying that he had sex with this girl or any sexual contact with her. I'm just saying based on this, these like relation, these statements that he's made about her and other young girls, this would be the, this is just a good opportunity to, to talk about it. Now, he has also tweeted about girls between the ages of 13 and 15. A 13-year-old with anyone over the age of 14 is automatically reportable. So if a 13-year-old is having any sexual contact with a 14-plus-year-old, reportable. Uh, with a 15-year-old, you have to report anything between a 21 and older. So there, if the 15-year-old is having a sexual relationship with someone 21-plus, you got to report that. So it's, yeah, it becomes quite tricky because the, the cutoff is different for different ages of the, the client that you're working with. Again, not reporting Machine Gun Kelly, not saying that he did anything that would require a report, but I think this is just a good time to share that information, um, especially because I think sometimes mandated reporting can be confusing and people interacting with like a teacher or a therapist or a police officer may not know uh, what they have to report. And it's just, it's part of informed consent for working with a therapist for you to know what are those uh, categories for reporting. Okay, so that was a long way to get to my first point, which is like, this was a gross thing to say about a young woman. And we can use this to talk about mandated reporting. The second icky thing about this tweet is that the only problem he has with tweeting about her, this person is that he doesn't want to disrespect the person's father. So just a reminder to people that women are their own people. Um, it does not matter what their relationship to a man is. It doesn't matter that they have a father. Uh, they are deserving of respect all of their own. Goes for everybody. Everybody deserves respect because they're a human being, does, not because of their relationship to a man. Machine Gun Kelly should not have tweeted that thing because it's disrespectful to 
the person he's tweeting about, not because it's disrespectful to Eminem. It obviously also was disrespectful to Eminem because now he's been beefing with this man for years, for almost 10 years. But the main point is that it's disrespectful to the person you're tweeting about. There was something about this era on social media where people really, really said a lot of things that should have been kept very quiet. And I don't know if it was just because we were still figuring out how social media worked um, and like how anonymity worked, but people can see what you say online. So (laughs) just be careful because it might get back to them or to someone that cares about them and someone may have a problem with it. But either way, people deserve respect because they are people, not because of their relationships to men. Now, like I said, he also has made tweets about various girls between the ages of 13 and 15, some of them tweets about young fans. Again, it's not like there's been any evidence that he has done anything sexually inappropriate with these girls, but he's making the statements, which are yucky. And I think it is just a good idea for us to be careful with the words we say. This, I think, ties into that earlier point about You know, people don't have to be comfortable with what you say. And if people are uncomfortable with what you say most of the time, maybe that's a sign that what you're saying is not okay and is not making people feel safe. And so this kind of language about underage girls is also, it's not creating a safe place for these girls who, if they're coming to listen to his music, may be coming from a place of going through similar situations he went through as a child and so may be more uh, vulnerable in general. And he also has a ton of money and a ton of fame and a ton of notoriety. Like he already has a imbalance in in a relationship, regardless of if they're underage or not. So that's also something to keep in mind is that celebrities have a lot of power over the rest of us to just like do normal stuff and nobody knows who we are, right? Like celebrities have a power, an inherent power uh, because of their fame, their money, their notoriety uh, that just makes these things a little more unbalanced. Now, the last concerning thing about underage girls MGK did was he made a statement about Kendall Jenner. He was asked in an interview who his celebrity crush was, and he said Kendall Jenner. She was 17 at the time, and he was 23, which, if I check my chart, (laughs) um, is not reportable. But he said he's counting down the days until she turns 18, and then later doubled down on it by saying that if she was naked in your room and you were 50, you would do something about it, and then listed a bunch of other rock stars that have had inappropriate sexual relationships with girls under the age of 18. This is something that he still has not apologized for and has been asked about it later and has still said that he uh, stands by the joke or the statement that he made. This is something that drives me crazy, not just because Machine Gun Kelly did it, but this has happened for many generations or many years since the internet (laughs) has come about and probably for all of time. But this countdown till a girl turns 18, till she's like, quote unquote, legal to have sex with is absolutely disgusting. I know that in like the 90s or I guess it would have been the early 2000s, there was like People had online countdowns to when the Olsen twins turned 18. People counted down to when Britney Spears turned 18. And there was a whole thing about her virginity because she part of her brand was that she was a virgin because she was like a good Christian girl. So that was like an extra added element to her turning 18. There's been like tons of child stars that people count down to the day they turn 18 so that you could legally have sex with them, which like, sure, maybe Machine Gun Kelly is in a is in the same realm as Kendall Jenner where he could be in a relationship with her. But like people on the internet are not going to be in a situation where they're even going to have a relationship with these people, let alone 
get to have sex with them. So you don't need to be counting down. And it's also very, very, very creepy that the only thing stopping you from engaging sexually with someone is their birthday. It's not good. It's really not good, especially if you're much older than the person. And I think we got to stop it. I know I'm not the first person to say it, but we got to stop counting down to when people turn 18. It's really gross. And again, because of his audience base, mostly adolescents and adolescent girls, not good behavior to be modeling that it's okay to count down to when someone turns 18. Because if inherently you're counting down to when someone becomes the legal age for like a sexual relationship, then you are acknowledging that just 24 hours before this person was not able to be in a sexual relationship with you, the physically only thing that was stopping you was that you could go to jail. That's not good. That's really not good. So stop. Stop counting down to when people turn 18. I know none of my listeners are doing that. But if you know anyone who is... They have to stop. Tell them to stop. It, it's just, it's creepy and, and most specifically happens to young women, which again puts forward this message that women are sexual objects, that their only purpose is to be sexual objects for the pleasure of men and reduces their identity to this like one function of their of their body and not even to like who they are, who their identity is. It's hard enough to be a teenager. Kendall Jenner was already like well known by the time she turned 18. Like people knew who she was. She her life had been documented since she had been born. She doesn't need the extra <laughs> attention, okay? And in the interest of again having like a teaching moment from these anecdotes or these problematic behaviors is if you find yourself seeking relationships with people who are much younger than you, stop and ask yourself, or if you know someone who does this, right? Stop and ask, like, what is it about that that you're getting out of it? I'm not talking about people who are, like, committing sex crimes, but, like, you know, there's always, like, the trope of, like, a 40-year-old dude who only has, like, 20-year-old girlfriends, right? Like, what is the function of only dating people who are significantly younger than you? Is it because relationships are complicated and it's easier with someone who can be intimidated by your age or your wealth and fame? That would be my guess for why someone would do that. And again, not that it's like immediately call the police, it's bad behavior, but I think that there is something to patterns of consistently engaging with with women or people who are much younger than you and like what because what does that pattern of behavior have to tell you lots of famous men do this though right like there's literal memes about Leonardo DiCaprio breaking up with his girlfriends the day they turn 25 so you know no one is free of blame here and it's another thing where it's not it's nothing illegal has been done or nothing reportable has been done but it is yucky and if people around you are uncomfortable by what you're saying say it with me you're the common denominator. Time to stop. And uh, another thing is that Machine Gun Kelly has a daughter. He has like a, a daughter who's, I believe she's still in high school. So like, you know, does anyone want to hear their dad talking about girls their age? No, I don't think so. I know he hasn't been doing it as much and now that he's he's older. But, you know, at the time, he still had, his daughter was still around. She was alive. She was a child. Nobody wants to hear their dad talking about you know, their peers like that. So that's another reason to to stop. <laughs> Let's talk about the last category. And this one I think can be very activating. So comment, uh, content warning, but this is about beh- abusive behavior with partners. Now, I don't know as much about his behavior with previous partners. There's o- I've only read the stuff about his relationship with Megan Fox. And again, they started dating in 2020. I believe she had just divorced her husband and then they got together and they got engaged this year. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. So one of the things that 
has happened since Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox got together is that Machine Gun Kelly started a fight with Conor McGregor, who's a UFC fighter, over alleged DM sent to Megan Fox at a professional event. So they were at the, I think it was like the MTV Music Awards or the VMAs, and they're on the red carpet. Machine Gun Kelly starts something with Conor McGregor, who, not a good person, (laughs) is famously not a good person and quite aggressive. Um, But Machine Gun Kelly instigates this fight. They have to be like physically restrained from each other on the red carpet and like pulled away because Machine Gun Kelly accused Conor McGregor of like trying to steal his woman, even though like they were friends before. I don't know. It's it's complicated. But the main thing is that Machine Gun Kelly instigated a physical assault at a work event. Mind you, this is his job and this is Megan Fox's job. He started a physical altercation at his job over potential Instagram messages that may or may not exist and may or may not have been sexual in nature. I know it sounds a little ridiculous because it's like happening at an MTV event, but if you think about this happening with regular people, if your partner shows up at your job or comes to a work party with you and then starts a fight with someone that they are accusing of trying to hit on you, this is not a good situation. Someone would be getting fired and you would not want to show your face at work again because that's so embarrassing. And I would note that this is a red flag for a potentially abusive relationship. If your partner is getting so out of control, angry or upset about who you talk to in your own social media or phone, that is very controlling and a potential sign that something is not right in the relationship. I'm not saying that Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox have an abusive relationship. I'm just taking this behavior and highlighting it that if it happened to you or me, right, if we subtract all the money and fame and attention on it, and it's just happening between regular people, there's concern. There would be concern. And if you were my patient and you told me that this happened to you at your work event, I would be very concerned for your safety because you get to talk to whoever you want to talk to. Your partner does not get to decide for you who you talk to. And vice versa, you don't get to decide who your partner talks to. Now, you can have conversations about it, right? You may not want your partner talking to their ex because that's a dangerous situation or, you know, could be potentially upsetting. Your partner can ask you to, you know, maybe not hang out with certain people one-on-one. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you get to decide and you have to be able to communicate to your partner how you're going to proceed with the relationship or, or not. You get to decide, though. Okay, your partner doesn't get to come in and control your phone or control your social media accounts. And even if they're not trying to control your accounts, them starting fights or alter, uh, instigating altercations because of what they saw on your phone is just another way of attempting to control you. Because what are the consequences of that behavior? Like, let's say you go to a work event, your partner shows up and tries to start a fight with someone that you've been texting, someone you know at work that you've been texting. Consequences of that are that you may not text that person anymore because you don't want this this thing to happen again because it's embarrassing, it's upsetting, it's uncomfortable, it's scary. So you're going to avoid texting that person. So inadvertently, your partner has now controlled your behavior because you're going to change your behavior to avoid that horrible outcome. It's different than a partner just coming out and saying you can't talk to them or I'm going to take your phone, but it has the same effect of now your behavior has changed. And that level of control over someone another person's behavior is, is quite scary and is, is a lot of control to have. So that's just a red flag. Uh, so now, particularly regarding their engagement, apparently when Machine Gun Kelly proposed to Megan Fox, they drank each other's blood. 
and she has given him a necklace that has a drop of her blood in it. Now, I don't think that this is inherently abusive to do blood play with each other. That's that's fine as long as everybody is safe and you're not passing like infections to each other. You go for it. You you give a little bit of drop of blood to each other. That's that's great. The problem is is that in the context of the design of the ring, which so the ring that he gave her has thorns on it so that if she tries to take her ring off it will cut her skin and make her bleed i don't i don't like that it's not cute it's not lovey-dovey it's toxic at the very best. i'm not gonna go out and say it's abusive but it's it's toxic why do you want to hurt your partner with a symbol of your long-term commitment to each other right the ring is a symbol of commitment and you want that symbol to hurt your partner if she takes it off. I mean, I'm spe- I'm like I'm speechless. <laughs> it made me speechless to hear that. Obviously, she seems to be into it, so like okay, that's fine that that they're into this and they're doing this like blood stuff together. But again, if we remove the money, the fame, the attention and we just put it into regular people's lives, if someone gave you a ring on it that's going to cut your finger if you take it off, What's the message that's sending you? The message is sending you, the message it is sending to you is if you leave me, I will hurt you. You will be very badly hurt if you try to leave me, if you end this commitment. And again, this is a potential red flag for a coercive or abusive relationship. If a partner is threatening you with extreme behavior, if you leave them, it's not a safe relationship to be in. I think for most people, what this often looks like is a partner threatening to hurt themselves or attempt suicide over a breakup. This, I think this is a lot more common than you may think that it is. And it's a story that I hear a lot in and out of, of therapy. If a partner is threatening you with that type of behavior, if you are trying to get out of the relationship, I just need you to know right now that it's that's not your responsibility. It's not your fault if they hurt themselves. It's not on you. They are in control of their behavior and your safety is your priority in that moment. No shame if you can't leave in that moment because of those statements, because that's such a horrifying thing to put on someone, right? If someone is telling you they're going to take their own life if you walk away from them, I totally understand why you would stay, why anyone would stay in that, because it's so, so horrifying and you don't, no one wants that responsibility on them. But if this can be just another little like piece of information to rattle around in your brain or a little affirmation to have for yourself. Just know that if you were in that type of situation, it's not your fault if somebody hurts themselves. It's their behavior is not your responsibility and is not under your control. They are the only ones in control of their behavior. I hope that they get help. I hope that they can figure out a different way of coping with the pain of ending a relationship. And I hope that both of you are safe if anyone listening to this is in that situation. Or if you know anyone who's in that situation, I hope that they are both safe. Now, Machine Gun Kelly has not as far as I know, threatened to hurt himself if Megan Fox leaves him. But the message of this ring is intense. And again, if it's happening without the fame and the money and the power, it's it has a different connotation. There's something about the fact that because he's famous or because both of them are famous that they can maybe get away with it more. There's been many celebrity couples that do the blood stuff. Like I think um, Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton did the blood stuff where they would like wear vials of each other's blood. Just like something that like celebrities get into. And I guess maybe if you're that far away from each other, if you're like apart from each other for so long, you want a little piece of them with you. So I, I can see, I can understand the behavior. I can understand the uh, the rationale behind it. But this like ring that's going to hurt you. I don't know. I don't, I, it gives me a bad feeling. And so I, w- and I just want to 
again, point out that if a partner is threatening harm to you or themselves, if you leave, that's not on you. You got to you gotta do what you got to do to keep yourself safe. Now, the last example of problematic behavior with partners is the most intense. And this was something that he himself shared in the documentary. So I, I heard it in the documentary and I also read about it in a couple articles. But a some point during his relationship with Megan Fox, she was out of the country filming and he was having a hard time after his dad passed away. And he called his partner on the phone to say that he was feeling paranoid. He thought someone was coming to kill him and he was blaming her for not being with him, for being out of the country for her job. And he put a shotgun into his mouth and went to cock the gun and it jammed. And so he wasn't able to go any further with it and, and put the gun down. He was on the phone with his partner while this was happening and had told her the gun is in my mouth and she heard the gun cock and jam. This is truly a horrifying thing to hear. One, because Machine Gun Kelly must have been in a lot, a lot of pain if this was something that he was compelled to do. He, I can't imagine how dysregulated he was, how much grief and pain he was in. So I want to start there from a place of empathy of that someone must be really, really hurting if they are engaging in this type of behavior or considering this type of behavior. I can't imagine what it would be like as a partner, like in Megan Fox's place, to hear that over the phone, particularly when you are very, very far away and not able to quickly get to your person. The immense psychological toll that would take on somebody to hear your like most important person to you, one of your most important people, like essentially on the verge of taking their own life. That's horrifying. And I know that people go through, like everyday people go through this, right? They've they've heard loved ones either threaten or make the attempt in front of them or on the phone and it's horrifying and it's so traumatic and I it's it's not okay I just want to say that like if, if you or anyone you know has gone through something like this like it's not okay and I'm so so sorry the reason I bring it up in the context of this like problematic behavior with partners is that this is also extremely extremely worrying in the context of a relationship again back to the point I made about if someone is threatening to take their own life because you are walking away from the relationship. It's manipulative. It's coercive. It's threatening one of the most horrible things you could threaten to a person because they're trying to be safe. They're trying to do what's right for themselves and probably for you. Now, I know in this situation that no one was threatening to leave each other, like Megan Fox was not threatening to break up with him. They were just having a regular conversation and he was in a bad place. But the fact that she was like at her job, she was in a place where she has to be for work. This is also something that often happens in abusive relationships is that when one partner is doing things that take them outside of the home or outside of the relationship, the other partner gets upset and can't handle it. So can't handle you having a job, can't handle you having outside friends, can't handle you having other activities that takes time away from you being with them. And although they're, you know, you may be partners with someone, you're not also their therapist and their priest and their doctor, right? You can be somebody's partner and be very supportive of them, but it doesn't mean that you are on call for every mental health crisis and that eventually someone's mental health is their own responsibility. Your mental health issues are not your fault, right? You didn't cause them. You most definitely did not ask for them. They are not your fault, but they are your responsibility. You know, whatever we've been saddled with in this life, it's our responsibility to figure it out. And so although that may sometimes mean calling your partner in a panic and saying like, I'm not doing well, I really need you right now. That also often looks like 
calling a crisis line, calling your therapist or your your provider, you know, whoever you have contact with that's in charge of your care. Uh, could be, you know, like attending treatment, taking your medication, like if, especially if you have a a medication that you take as needed, like Ativan. There are lots of things, like doing meditation, doing a mindfulness exercise, doing actual exercise, getting out of the house, drinking a glass of water. Like there are lots of ways to deal with distress, with um, intense emotional distress um, that do not require you to do something that would threaten your own life or threaten somebody else's life. And so I'm just, again, using this to illustrate that our mental health is is not our fault. It's not our fault. We didn't ask for it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. But once we have it, once we have the issue and we've been saddled with it, we are then in the driver's seat about where to go with it. And we can choose to ignore it and hope that it goes away. Or we can choose to be proactive and do what we can to help ourselves. We're going to relapse, right? We're going to have problems. We're going to have days where we can't pull it together and do our mindfulness or take our medication. And we need that extra support. And sometimes our romantic partners are the best people to call when we're having a tough day. But if it's escalated to this point, to the point where this is a story that you're telling in your own documentary, and there are articles being written about it. Check yourself, you know, check yourself into a hospital, check yourself into a program, check yourself into whatever treatment you need to get right, because it's not fair to your partner. It's not fair to take this stuff out to your partner. It's not fair to yourself. You deserve better. And because you're in the driver's seat, you can be the first one to put on the blinker and change lanes. I know that's a horrible analogy, (laughs) but inspiration struck. So that's what I have to say about MGK, Mr. Colson Baker. If you like his music, good on you. I wish him the best. I hope that he gets the support that he needs and can continue to make music for people that relate to him. I don't think you need to be a tortured artist to make good art. I don't think you need to sit in your suffering and not get help to make good art. I think that you can be on psychotropic medications and make good art, make good music. I think that you can be in therapy and make good art or make good music. This goes to everyone out there. If you think that you need to be a tortured artist to become famous or to reach your goals, you don't. You really don't. I don't recommend it. With that, I just want to say thank you for listening all the way to the end. I know this one was a rough ride, um, but I think it needed to be done. So I think the next problematic man that I'll talk about will be either, I don't know, maybe Andrew Tate or Dr. Jordan Peterson. We'll see. We'll see who I have time for next, but it's not going to be until probably like next month, the month after, because it's a lot of research. Anyway, with that being said, thank you for listening all the way to the end and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.